0: this is the arbitration station i'm joel dahl chris kulbor i'm with brian katek and brian wanted to say hello brian wanted to do the intro but i just stole it so you can go ahead and do your hellos brian hello <laughs> you think that was good <laughs> i was
1: trying to change my inflection borat hello
0: hello hello.
1: <laughs> hello. 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 <laughs> hello hello hello
0: Governor. <laughs> oh already going downhill all right <laughs> okay. all how right. are you brian I'm good.
1: Uh, We stayed late today to record this, but um, I'm just excited for the holiday
0: season. That's right. And when you say stayed late, that means you're at the office.
1: I'm at the office in our conference room. Where are you?
0: I'm at my office, which also happens to be my home. So for me, it makes no difference if we're staying late because I'm barely moving.
1: But see, I find that that gray area or, you know, it bleeds into work and home. That's it seems dangerous.
0: Today, actually, I just to give you and our listeners a minor insight into the life of a PhD student. I did my best work today when I took a bath and I read a a very good book called The Liability of Arbitral Institutions, a doctoral dissertation published by Springer Press. And uh, so I I tried for like seven to nine hours to get any writing done, and I just ended up browsing the internet for seven to nine hours. But (laughs) when I I took a bath, I read a book, and I got some good ideas and took some notes, and I wouldn't have if I, uh, you know, if I was working in an office with no bathtub.
1: I'm gonna petition for a bathtub in my office now, actually.
0: In your personal office? In my personal
1: office (laughs) with a curtain. (laughs) No, I actually have a fear of a bathtub So, like, I have a phobia, a true phobia, so...
0: No such thing, I'm sorry. I do.
1: It's dirty 100% of the time. Yeah, but so is everything. (laughs) I know. I would rather lay on a moss-covered rock in the highlands, uh, covered in bugs, than than sit in a bathtub.
0: Does this cover spas as well?
1: No. I don't know why. It's mental. Oh, yeah. Something from my childhood, I'm sure... (laughs)
0: Should we talk about arbitration? Yes, please. <laughs> What are we doing today? Well, first of all, I'm I'm checking out and I'm gonna go get a milkshake or something because you are, are interviewing. Yes, we are interviewing a
1: senior associate at a Swedish firm here called Rochier. Her name is Shirin Saif. And I actually misspoke in the beginning of the interview, so I'm just gonna correct it now. I said that we only have interviewed women on this podcast, which I thought was correct. But then I remembered we interviewed Simon Wolf. so uh, And Hannes Link. And Hannes Link. So it was a complete misstatement, so you could ignore that. Um, but we talk about examination of witnesses, and we go into a little bit with direct examinations because we compare the Swedish system to the American system or the arbitration system. And then we really focus on cross-examination uh horror stories tips and tricks but also like you know effective means to get out the truth
0: that's great and after this thrill of an interview i will be talking a little bit about the Uncitral. i was thinking i haven't really told you this but i was thinking i will this episode i'm going to do a, a an introduction a 101 the, the the basic course of Uncitral. And then the next episode, I'll do an advanced course on UNCITRAL. And the reason for this is, of course, that as this episode, episode fourteen,
1: yes, yes,
0: airs, uh, it, it, uh, this episode airs the same week that UNCITRAL in Vienna uh, are starting the major reform work of investor-state arbitration. And I know many people in the business are aware of this. And it's been talked about a lot because the, what they're trying to do is to figure out whether and if so, how we should uh, construct a multilateral investment court and or appellate body. And it's going to go on for a couple of years. I thought it, it would be appropriate first to give an introduction to this organization, what they do and how they do it. And then secondly, I'm going to call in from Vienna because I'm going to be there next week and, and let our listeners know. How the negotiations are going.
1: Very, very exciting. Now, what capacity are you going as?
0: None. I don't have any capacity. An interested body. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm going to get back to that. I'm actually there uh, officially, I'm there as an observer on behalf of the SEC, the Arbitration Institute in Stockholm.
1: Oh, OK. OK, but you'll get into that later. Yeah. OK. I will. Exciting. That's That sounds like a really good idea uh, to have that split up so that we can follow you along on your journey. Yes, uh, and then for a happy fun time topic, something very interesting that I kind of piqued my interest in the past few weeks, which is QCs and barristers in the arbitration sphere. It's becoming um, pretty predominant area, and a lot of QCs are actually being hired by law firms to have your like resident QC in house. Um, so kind of talking about the benefits of having a QC on your team of uh, counsel, and maybe as if you're listening from a client perspective whether you should get a qc involved so kind of go through the pros and cons of that
0: that's uh, nice it's it's barely a happy fun time topic it sounds like a substantive topics but, but we will make it happy and fun
1: yeah i'll do it all in a british accent that'll be fun <laughs> and okay let's go And welcome to our first segment. We have another interview before us, which I'm pretty excited about. Uh, Not our first interview, but you know we've only interviewed all women on this podcast?
2: Oh, really? Yeah. Mm, Interesting. Don't you think that's good? That's amazing. (laughs) And unusual.
1: Exactly. But uh, the reason why we have Sharin safe here is because... She has had so many hearings in the past couple months. Uh, she's been a hearing machine and including that is a lot of witness examination. So we want to pick your brain on what kind of tips and tricks you have for like good examination techniques, both direct and cross-examination. Um, but before we get into that, why don't you tell us about yourself? You're a Swedish lawyer.
2: Yeah, um, I'm a Swedish lawyer. I uh, work at a law firm um, called Rosier. Uh It's originally a Finnish law firm, but it also has an office in Stockholm, and that's where I work. And we have, I think, 500 employees, more than 500 oh, wow. employees uh, in both of the offices, the Helsinki and the Stockholm one. And um, And you're focusing
1: I, on international arbitration. Right,
2: yeah. So I'm in the disputes team here, uh, and my focus is primarily Uh, international arbitration
1: Um, now we talked a little bit before that you think that especially when it comes to witness examination direct examination that there's a difference between your Swedish background and maybe what you see in international arbitration
2: yes uh, definitely Um, So the basic kind of uh, or the general rule uh, in uh, Swedish proceedings, even in arbitrations, I would say still, uh, is that the direct examination is uh, it's it's quite long, basically, because uh, generally in Swedish proceedings, you don't have witness statements. So um like how
1: long like 30 minutes or uh,
2: it can be I just finished a hearing I have to say that was quite exceptional but I uh, my last hearing that um uh I had a couple weeks ago um that we had witness uh, direct examinations that were um a, a whole day what? for a whole day <laughs> yeah because you have to get through all
1: the facts that they were testifying to. Yes,
2: because, uh, well, in that case, that was very special. I mean, I wouldn't say that that's a common situation where you have a direct examination for an entire day. But I would say it's typically between maybe 30 minutes and an hour and a half. That's okay. a normal, I would say, direct in in like a bigger case. Right.
1: Uh, so what, when you have this, I'm sure you see some benefits in that, kind of just like putting them on the spot from the from day one, basically, that they have no prep, official prep, right. like writing witness statements and stuff right. like that. What do you think the benefits are of a witness statement then?
2: I think the benefits of a witness statement is that uh, I personally think that it's more uh, cost efficient in a lot of situations because... Um, you have time to, uh, you know, get whatever. First of all, you can condense everything that the witness wants to say. It's not, you know, in a situation where you're asking, uh, when you have a Swedish style direct examination, you're asking the witness questions and you have no idea really, uh, I mean, you have an idea because you've prepared them, but, right, right, right. but you can't control their answer in the same way to make sure that it's short or that it's to the point or, um, you know... Not um, revealing damaging statements. <laughs> well, that, that as well. <laughs> um, but um, when you have a witness, even, of course, you have the opportunity to suggest to the witness, you know, I understand that you think this is important, but it's actually not important for, for this right. particular issue or this particular case. So you can condense kind of the story of the witness in that way. And also, of course, when you get to the hearing, you don't need to prepare the witness for both the direct examination and the cross-examination, which is what you have to do in a Swedish style proceeding. Um, When it comes to um, kind of the more typical international arbitration, um, then you can just prep the witness, you know, go over the witness statement very carefully and just you know do mock cross right. uh, so obviously i personally think that in most cases it brings down the costs significantly Definitely. and it helps the witness prepare and focus and uh and not be surprised to the same extent i think um, right
1: so before we launch into cross because i think that's like the meatier subject right what what is kind of like the basic things to think about when you uh have a direct examination
2: the basic things in are you talking about a Swedish style? Direct? No, no, no.
1: Let's stick to internet, even though we're two Swedes here. Right. I, know,
2: maybe. <laughs> I, I mean, a normal direct examination, uh, in a typical direct examination in an international arbitration, I would say just keep it short, keep it simple. Right. I mean, very, uh, I've personally never experienced a situation where we haven't had the. You know, the typical situation is basically, you know, this is, is this your, you've, you've submitted a witness statement. Is there anything you wish to amend, clarify, correct, um, no, or yes. And then you ask maybe one question on that. Right. Um, I've personally never experienced a situation where we've had longer direct examinations in international arbitrations, um, which I know that some people, or that happens in some cases that basically... Uh, you know, you say we can have 10 minute right. direct, for instance, and and you'll have the opportunity to maybe ask one or two, you know, relevant questions just right. to get that specific point across to the tribunal. But I've never personally seen that. I've either yeah. had the Swedish style direct or the, the all or you nothing. know, exactly, right. the all or, you know, is there anything you wish to clarify kind of situation. Yeah,
1: we've had one like X. Ex- Well, we've had a couple of experts, because experts kind of you want to have like a third Right, that's
2: a completely different situation, I think. And Um, you're right, we should limit it to fact witnesses.
1: Now, okay, so now the other side has done their direct, and now you're rolling up your sleeves to prepare for cross. Well, that's even before you get into the hearing room. um, Are you writing down, because we, I mean, basically the reason why we're talking about this with each other is because we were at this conference about a week or two ago. Right. And they were talking about kind of techniques for preparation for cross-examination. And there was one speaker, I think it was John Adams who talked about it, who yes. basically said that there's different styles of how to how to prep. So are you creating this like very detailed script where it's like if A go to B and it's like a choose-your-own-adventure and like you're prepared for everything versus someone who has, okay, here's topic A, mm-hmm. here's the points that I need to like tick off And then I know how to kind of get there. What do you use?
2: I think it depends on the case and the situation and whether I'm... You know, if I'm preparing for myself, yeah. then I think uh, the preparations are a bit different. In that case, if I feel like I'm very well read on the file, I don't necessarily create one of those, uh, you know, if yes, move right. to question 27. If no, you know, move over to question uh, or move on to question 39. Right. Um, but I, I do feel like uh, I think... For a lot of junior lawyers, if I were to give some advice, you know, because mm-hmm. sometimes you're preparing uh, or most often you're comp- you're preparing questions for your partner or for your senior associate. Right. And in those cases, I think it's very important to have these kind of script like uh, questions, because uh, more often than not, the, um, the partner or the senior associate, they may know the file filed fairly well, but they're not going to be into the details, you know, uh, to the same extent. As you are, right. and you can't assume that if you know there's a no or a yes or a I don't remember or whatever it may be, that that yeah. person is going to know exactly how to move forward from from a certain question that you've drafted. So I personally think that if you're preparing um, questions for someone else, yeah, then you better give them something that's very clear. You know, if this is the answer, move over here. If this is the answer, you know, ask about this. Um, because you just can't assume that they have the same level of knowledge as you have. And then if they do, they can take that, um, those questions and, uh, work with them and redraft right. them and make them their own. So I think, um,
1: cause it is, I mean, and I think cross-examination is one element of like pure oral advocacy, even mm-hmm. though you're just asking questions, it's the way you ask them Right. Absolutely. when to know when to like speed up, when to really like hit them on something. Do absolutely. you, well, so let's say you prepared something for yourself mm-hmm. And like, what kind of style do you do you have? And this may be a trade secret, and you don't want to like reveal. It. <laughs> <laughs> so you could talk about hypothetically a friend, hypothetically, or like, or yeah. maybe something that you've seen was like a really good technique that was like, when a witness is lying, do X, or when right, you see right. um, a witness is just sitting there being like, I can't remember, even though you yeah. definitely can tell that they can.
2: Um, I would say
1: like good, good cop, bad cop, or like, right. Or,
2: I, I personally don't like the aggressive uh, method of cross examination. Uh, I have this book with me here, or it's a, a kind of part from from a, I think, a bigger, uh, more hearing a book about hearings, and it's about cross examination. And there's this really uh, interesting quote here that. Uh, cross-examination is not angry examination and I thought that was so uh... even
1: though it is a synonym
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh, but you know I just think that that's so important because I think that that's a mistake that a lot of young lawyers make that first of all I think it's the mistake goes basically two ways that either you think that this cross-examination means that you have to be angry and you have to you know be the bad cop and you've watched American courtroom dramas and you think that the only way a cross-examination can be successful is if you act like that or the other side of it is that you have seen someone else you know do a cross in that way like you've watched your partner do it that way or or um you know some senior at the firm and I think it's really important I think that's my number one uh, tip or advice to to younger uh lawyers is to find your own um method and your own style of cross-examination because I don't if you're not comfortable asking the questions in a certain way or if you're not comfortable um you know uh, with a certain style or technique then I don't think the cross is going to turn out very well so uh my personal style is not to be very aggressive it's more start out calm and you know um and maintain that calm uh, and uh, just focus on the focus on the facts and uh, I find actually that well first of all I find that as a woman and uh, as a woman who looks quite young uh, I find that a lot of people underestimate me to begin with Uh, so I think that it's it's just better to Stay calm, you know, be uh, very professional because I find that in a lot of ways that agitates them even more, the witness, that is. Um, And uh, when the witness gets angry or, you know, uh, tries to avoid answering certain questions, I just think that you as a lawyer, you just look more professional when you're calm and you're just sticking to the facts and and trying to reason with the witness rather than trying to like... You know, bully them exactly like, bully them bully them into saying something whatever that is um right but i have to add that this also of course depends on the witness in question um sometimes you know if you have a very very uh smart and cunning witness right. then you may need to you know uh, you know the gloves are off kind of situation that you need to uh just be a bit more more uh not necessarily aggressive but uh a assertive. bit more assertive exactly yeah. um but then there are situations where the witness is completely you know like a quiet quiet little mouse and and then you'll just look like a complete bully if you're if you're <laughs> intimidating the witness you so. can handle <laughs> exactly it's not a tom cruise <laughs> uh, or jack nicholson or whoever that was right uh, situation um so I think it depends on the witness and it depends on you and your personal style. I um, So I, you're
1: saying like, keep it, keep it.
2: But calm. always stay calm, I think. Uh, I yeah. think you can you can be very firm with the witness without raising your voice, without being sarcastic, without, right. um, you know, all of these things. Um,
1: and you can tell when people have like a technique, like it It becomes very transparent. Like right. I sat as secretary, so I've seen a lot of like different um, like lawyers in their cross examination style, and you hear, like, you know, a witness that's trying to evade a question, and then they see. Like you hear someone and they just keep repeating, that's, that's not my question or answer my question. And like, right, right. when they get like that, then you feel uncomfortable because you're like, okay, you obviously learned this in some course that this is what you're supposed to right. say.
2: That's so or true. For an
1: witness. And right. Just like it has to be a bit more natural than that. Yeah. Because then the witness is going to like lock up like a clam too. Yeah. Don't you think?
2: Oh, I agree. I think uh, that's, I, <laughs> I think that's another common mistake that, you know, I'm the one asking the questions here or, uh, you know, not you, or what's the other one that people keep saying? Um, just, well, like you said, like, just say yes or no. This is a very simple question. You know, it's like, I, I personally, I think that that's just like, uh, I don't know. It's just a very low level of cross-examination techniques, uh, Uh, You haven't really worked hard at your craft, if those are the kind of tricks that you have to resort to. Um,
1: I heard And and I think it also goes to the... Because basically what happens is that you've prepared a question that you think is your one fact, one answer question, mm -hmm. and then you've realized that the witness can find a way out of it. So you're just almost mad at yourself that your question wasn't crafted better.
2: (laughs) And that's why I'm saying also it's so important because... Uh, w- with the preparations that if you're a junior lawyer and you're just uh, drafting questions and then you're just assuming that the witness is going to cooperate and say right. yes or no right. in a lot of situations they say it's not that simple it's this or it's that and then what are you going to do are you just going to keep badgering the witness with the same question or are you going to make sure that you know uh, there are documents at hand that you can turn to and look right. at if if you don't get like a a very clear answer. Um, so I think that's very important, but I don't know. I, uh, there are so many, this, I wish I knew what this book is called. I just have like an excerpt from it, but, um, it's called cross-examination and it has one, two, three, four, five, six chapters, chapters okay. 50 through 55. And it's such a good book. It's very American, uh-huh. I should add. <laughs> um, so we it's could very, talk trash you know, about them. I'm the Swedish. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like a, yeah, you're <laughs> Swedish now. Yeah. Um, but but it has a lot of good uh, tips and advice on how to handle situations like one of the ones you just brought up that, um, you know, the witness says, I can't remember. Mm -hmm. And this book talks about, um, you know, maybe you can ask the witness, okay, have you at some point known this information? You know, you're saying now that you can't remember it, but do you think that at some point you did know the answer to this question? Yes. Okay. When was that? Um, Okay. That was, you know, three years ago. Okay. And, And do you remember how you got that information was it through a document was it through you know you can find out a lot about uh from from those types of questions when you're t- trying to dig a little deeper without being aggressive without that's a saying really good
1: idea. that's a really good point you know
2: not not saying oh it's interesting that the witness doesn't remember this they maybe <laughs> i'll just move on you're like oh god you know this isn't it's
1: like two kids in a fight with i okay. know it's, it's like, just very <laughs>
2: Exactly, um, and, and another technique that I absolutely despise, but yeah. that actually turns out that it, it works sometimes, and which I saw, um, I saw this in in this past hearing that I just finished, um, where the the uh, counsel keeps asking the same question, um. even though the witness gives the exact same answer. They keep he keeps asking it and you know maybe varies it a little you know chooses different words but then keeps coming back to the same question maybe asks two questions in between and then back to the same one again and a lot of witnesses I find uh, it, it, it's kind of like false confessions I think we talked about this yeah, a couple of weeks ago on Netflix exactly <laughs> what's it called confession tapes, tapes or yeah. something um, the witness gets tired you know the witness is like I've already said no for instance uh 10 times and this person keeps badgering me so if i say yes i'll get out of this situation right. if this won't he'll move on i'm not going to be this uncomfortable anymore cuz i've given him the answer that he wants and then he'll move on to the next question and um i didn't think that that would be so um as you know work as well as it actually does but mm. in some situations if the witness isn't prepared and the witness is uh, a bit more sensitive, I would say, then they crack under pressure right. and they ultimately change their answer. Um, but I personally don't like that technique because, as a, I think, as a lawyer, you see right through it, and I would feel if I was on, uh, on the tribunal, I wouldn't find that very impressive. Exactly, because the witness has already said no, for instance, five or six times, and then the seventh time they change your answer. I mean, I don't think that's very uh, credible. Right, um,
1: but. That's that'll be like one of my my last question is basically, okay, now you're on the other side and your client or your witness is getting cross-examined right? Do you ever or have you ever hopped in to say, you know that this is an American objection, but like asked and answered basically, like this question's already been asked. like do you, as your personal style, do you feel comfortable hopping in and
2: uh, I think it depends on the tribunal. I think uh, a lot of Swedish tribunals um, they may be a bit more, you know, we don't, we're not gonna, you know, get involved in this. Right. The, the you know, let the let the other side ask the questions that they want to ask, and then the witness will answer whatever he or she feels comfortable with right um so i i think it depends on the tribunal maybe if i had some american arbitrators i would would try to uh, use some of those evidence rules but uh, (laughs) but you know since in sweden we we have barely we don't even have the same type of evidence rules that you have in the u.s um so uh there are basically none of those objections that you would see on TV are right. actually relevant in a in a typical Swedish courtroom proceeding, uh, maybe uh, or definitely to a, to a larger extent in arbitrations, even if they're one hundred percent Swedish arbitrations, but. But still, it's not right. like we don't have that culture of objecting right. um, in the same way. I would say one of the most frequent objections is, um, um, you know, let the let the witness finish and, you know, whatever he's answering because or she is answering because the um, opposing counsel keeps interrupting or saying, you know, just And that's answering. something a tribunal
1: will really, like, safeguard. Right. Because they really would not, do not like that, I feel. Right.
2: Um, but I have seen uh, tribunals that say... You know, of course you can answer, but please try to keep your answers short. And you know, that's kind of a right an indication that maybe the tribunal thinks that the witness is not being right um, exactly.
1: Right. Have you ever done cross examination with a translator? I have. Yes. How was that?
2: It's very challenging, I know. <laughs> uh, especially uh, as you know, we've had some uh, um, CIS related cases, right. and I think that's very challenging because um for a lot of i mean obviously when it's a language that you can not you can understand maybe only a few words Then right. um and it takes i think the for instance the russian language a uh, beautiful language uh, but very complicated <laughs> and uh i find that it's very hard to you know uh, there are a lot of words for something that you yourself may think was very simple <laughs> very right, simple right, question right. um and uh, it just takes a while
1: to get the momentum. To get them
2: exactly, you just lose momentum. So.
1: And then you try and fight the momentum, people. and then like the translator said, like stop, yeah. stop, stop, and then you have to like start over.
2: Yeah, and I think this just—I I, mean—one of the most important things when you're—and uh, Professor Hobert brought this up at the workshop, the Young ICA workshop that you and I attended uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, one of the most important things is to ask short questions. And that will never be, you know, as important. That it's the most important when you're asking uh, questions with the help of a translator, right? Because if your questions are long, the translation is long, and the witness forgets, you know, what was, what did you say, you know? Right, right, um, right, right. So, but of course, you can't control the witness's answers. No. And especially when you have translated, you don't even, you can't even do the classical, you me the classic like interrupt and say answer yes <laughs> or no, because yes you have to finish <laughs> listening to the answer, you know? That's true. Uh, so it gets very, uh, although I don't, I don't do that, but I'm just saying you can't, you it can't happens. even resort to your old cheap tricks if you, if you <laughs> wanted to. <laughs> Those are not translatable. <laughs> exactly.
1: All right. So. Uh, let's move on.
0: Okay, so talking about UNCITRAL first things first, how do we pronounce this? The oh. United Nations Commission on International Trade <laughs> And I have no idea. That's the answer. <laughs> so I thought it might be good just to get it out of the way and I think we both of us we've been inconsistent. I have tended to say UNCITRAL. Yeah. Because I I did an internship at UNCITRAL in 2012 when it was it, it's in Vienna and they spoke German in Vienna, naturally, and I just assumed the German way of pronouncing it would be unsitral Right. But it's not a German body in any way, it's the United Nations, so it, it might make more sense to say unsitral or even Uncetral because of the United Nations. What do you think?
1: Ooh, oh, 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 because you would say the UN? Exactly. Oh, I I say unsitral
0: Okay, I think I say both unsitral and unsitral Anyway, we're we're all fine. We can say what we want, and maybe someone from UNCITRAL, UNCITRAL can, can call us and. UNCITRAL. <laughs> <give a laughs> it is, in any event, the United Nations Commission on International Trade Law, and as I mentioned in the intro, this will be the, the introductory course to the UNCITRAL which is something that most arbitration lawyers are aware of at least uh, in on like a superficial level because we do have the uncentral arbitration rules we have the uncentral model law we also have the new york convention which was drafted before the uncentral came into work but uh, the uncentral secretariat they are the repository for the new york convention so they sort of they're the supreme guardians of uh, every arbitration lawyer's favorite convention so we all have some sort of relationship to this body. But I think, and this is just my personal sense, I don't know if if you agree, but I think most people have limited insight in, into what Unsetral actually is.
1: Agreed. I think because it's usually, you know, Unsetral ad hoc. And so you think it goes into this ad hoc world of everyone does their own way of things. So you don't even think that there's like a harmonized interpretation or understanding of what happens.
0: Exactly. And that's actually what they do. They, they try to harmonize international trade law more widely. And it's more than arbitration, actually, although that is obviously for natural reasons. That's what we see the most of. It is the UN body for trade law more widely. So going into the organization of the ONCE trial, most of the work is being done in different working groups. I think there's six working groups now when i did my internship like 5 years ago working group 2 did dispute settlement uh, ranging from you know like online arbitration to to uh, transnational litigation issues now just recently and th- that's the reason we're talking about this now they made working group 3 so not working group 2 they made a new working group only for investor state dispute settlement reform So they sort of took ISDS out of dispute settlement and started a completely new working group. Okay. Just in recognition of how uh, relevant ISDS has become on the international trade law uh, agenda more generally. And it's in these working groups that the action happens really. The meeting that starts yesterday as this is published on a Tuesday it uh, is a working group meeting, working group three. But the sort of supreme body of the UNCITRAL is the commission, which meets once a year in New York and once a year in Vienna. So that's sort of the decision-making body and the membership in the commission rotates among UN member states. I think there's 60 of them at any given time. So sometimes your home state is an UNCITRAL member state, sometimes it's not. But typically, most other states are also present, although they cannot vote. So, only 60 member states at the time on a rotating schedule elected by the General Assembly.
1: And when you say vote, what are they voting on?
0: They are the Commission, they are voting on basically what UNCTRAL uh, is about to do, and they approve. Uh, well, let me put it like this. They instruct the working groups, and then they approve what the working groups come up
1: uh-huh. with. uh Okay.
0: So now, for example, they've, they've made a decision that working group three is devoted to reforming investor-state dispute settlement reform. Gotcha. Or, uh, not reform. They are reforming investor-state dispute settlement. And then it, the ball goes to the working group, and they spend you know between a year and five years, maybe, trying to come up with things within the mandate given to them. And then they put that to a vote in the commission. And the working group is sort of a reflection in terms of membership of the commission. So now in VNI in working group three, we have 60 member states in working group three, but we also have a lot of other um, interested parties, NGOs, IOs, international organizations, and also the EU Commission, which is uh, an example that I will probably return to next week because it's so complicated how the EU Commission relates to the member states here. But the basic point is that in the working group, you also have 60 member states, uh, many more non-member states who may speak in the working group, but who may not vote. And then you have a lot of other organizations and experts who may also speak, but not vote. So it's an interesting, it's not like the General Assembly, it's more of a a diverse, strange uh, body.
1: Yeah, that sounds very confusing.
0: (laughs) It is, and it's even more confusing because different states tend to send different types of delegations to the UNCTRAL meetings. So this, I think, going back in time, because of the UNCTRAL rules and the UNCTRAL model law that we all know about, many arbitration people have actually been involved in the drafting Of these instruments even though they were not technically you know bureaucrats or or government lawyers at the time because many states for various reasons send more people or other people than their government representatives so they send experts from the field i.e arbitrators or professors
1: it sounds like the ali in the united states um which is made up of a lot of practitioners so they make the um secondary source which is you know the the restatement it's called yeah um and so they kind of have i mean the us is not international but they have like people and practitioners from all over the country come and meet and they have judges and all different levels to kind of get like a whole you know perspective on what how all the users are going to look at this
0: yeah and this is an interesting and i think often overlooked thing that the also trial is uh, the way decisions are being made in UNCITRAL? Because now, as we know, the EU Commission has been trying to uh, build some sort of momentum for reforming investor-state dispute settlement as we know it, and UNCITRAL is really the natural body to go to because it's a forum that has the UN sort of seal of approval, uh, but they also get input from other experts. But given that, and given what seems now to be a uh, consensus that ONCEP is the forum through which we should reform or uh, come up with, with new initiatives, it's, we know suspiciously little about how th- those decisions would be taken, actually. Uh, for example, formally, both the commission and the working groups, they take their decisions by consensus, at least ostensibly. And because the the word consensus, as you and I think of it, or any normal person really, is that everyone has to agree. Yeah. But that's not the case here, because then nothing would ever get done. So they have sort of a liberal interpretation of what consensus is, which is most members have to agree, basically. Which is very complicated and opens up for some uh, politicking, really, which I hopefully will get back to as I... As I see it live, yeah, during the the working group meeting,
1: The you gossip of the podcast.
0: Yes, exactly, because I was actually—I mean, I was a—I was a child when I was an intern there, and they were doing the the transparency rules, and uh, I was amazed by the the diplomatic, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm trying to put this diplomatically. I know, I can hear it. (laughs) Deal-making being done. And also, a very interesting thing is the person who chairs the working group. Because uh, that person is typically elected by the members at the beginning of a cycle. So I assume we will, or the members, will elect a chairperson during the first couple of days now when, when this reform cycle starts up.
1: Oh, so you don't know who it group. is yet.
0: No, and that's also some politicking, like from which state and what kind of person is gonna be an arbitrator or you know, a, a government lawyer, or who knows. But the chairperson has a lot of, of uh, power, I think. Sharing a big exit case is nothing compared to sharing an you non know, working group meeting. I can because... imagine no one is prepared for that. <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, exactly and you have i mean as i said you have everything from like one generalist diplomat representing the smaller states to the delegation sent by like the us or switzerland or canada where you have famous arbitration people alongside like a handful of skilled lawyers from the foreign ministry or the justice department or whatever and you have to make all of these move forward as a chairperson, you have to sort of have a, an agenda and steer them in a direction because you're only meeting for a couple of days and you start with a blank piece of paper and you have to come up with something. And all this while you know maintaining a super polite diplomatic air as a chairperson. And then you have people like me from the SEC and you have people from environmental NGOs and you have people from the EU Commission and we all want to speak. And it's up to the chairperson to interrupt or to sort of guide the community of people there trying to to make their case it's very very impressive and I'm looking forward to seeing who's going to chair this working group session
1: yeah so the untra arbitration rules for example those were done via a working group in the exact same way that you're describing now
0: yeah I would I would think so I haven't looked that much into the history because as you know they were first the first version is from 1976. And I think UNCITRAL is from like the mid-60s. The UNCITRAL is a product of the same time and era that ICSID. So I think the UNCITRAL arbitration rules, that was maybe one of the first few things they ever did. So maybe the procedure hadn't really set, I would imagine, at that time. But I know for a fact that when they revised the arbitration rules in 2010, and also when they revised the model law in 2006, this was the way the work was being done and i know a lot of well-known arbitration people who were very much involved on behalf of states sometimes even on behalf of states that they are not citizens in just because the states wanted to signal you know some sort of sophisticated air and oh wow well-known experts to represent the state
1: that's so interesting it's like the olympics and people come home to their home (laughs) state uh, that they don't even belong
0: to exactly and, I mean, the end result, of course, has to be a compromise, naturally, because you have 60 states from all over the world with, with so different agendas to start with. So I think the, both the arbitration rules and the model are extraordinary legal products to come out of this process. And the transparency rules, in my personal opinion, are maybe more of a, a result of a compromise and of course, the transparency rules are not mandatory in any way, in any way, it's an opt-in thing. So that's also how they uh, struck a balance between the states advocating more transparency and those who were less keen on transparency. But just to give you some perspective now that we start working on this major reform work, when maybe we'll make up a permanent world investment court with an appellate body, huge project. The Transparency Rules, which are like nine provisions in an opt-in instrument, also took years to negotiate. So I envision that this reform work that starts off now in November 2017 is going to be with us for quite some time. So next week I'll be in Vienna and I'll probably record from there and, and keep you updated and give you some more details into the the back-channeling going on because of course as always this is arbitration and the real decisions are being made in the coffee breaks
1: yeah exactly are there going to be any like minutes or like travaux that will be published do you know
0: yeah I think travaux would be a stretch that's also that's actually something we did when I was an intern at the secretariat I should probably mention that there's a secretariat which is in Vienna and they work with all these different working groups and so not just with arbitration but also with like insolvency law and securities and e-commerce and things that we don't really care about as arbitration lawyers. And they do all the work in between the working group sessions. So they summarize what has been said and what will we talk about next time. And that's an exercise in and of itself in diplomatic writing to try to (laughs) take the sometimes strongly worded positions from the states and put it into some sort of summary uh, in between. I, since I was young, as I mentioned at the time, this was not something I was very good at. Obviously they didn't let a tiny intern from Sweden do it, but <laughs> we got to, we got to be, like, be involved in that process. And it's, it's very complicated to, yeah. to to border things down to the extent that everyone can agree, but still move the process along.
1: Definitely. It seems like a it's task good. and it's gonna be, so, I mean, how often are they gonna meet when you guys meet for five years? So it's going to be
0: the same as the commission, I think. So it's going to be uh, in Vienna and in New York uh, twice a year. So one once per year in each city. So within, I think it's, you know, within six months now, it's going to be in New York and then they come back to Vienna.
1: And you'll be so there for a week.
0: Yes, I think each session typically is a week, although that's probably something we'll discuss now in the first week.
1: Right. Do you have any, like, specific assignments via the sec or you're no you just said you're going to be an observer
0: yeah i mean technically they're an observer in in the sense that they or we cannot really uh, vote or you know participate formally although our views might be invited but no i'm not i don't have any instructions to be super active i think it's more of a you know we're there if you guys need anything because the sec And I assume also, you know, the PCA and exit and they're all going to be there because they're the ones who have experience on the ground floor of arbitration. So if anything comes up or if I highly doubt this, given the the level of expertise in the room, but if the discussion sort of wanders off into something that's just, you know, not relevant or bears little resemblance to real life. Right, institutional work. Then maybe it's good to have a few people from institutions in the room that can just wave a flag and say, "This is not the way it's done."
1: I mean, an academic being there is just as bad. I think. <laughs> <You're> Like, good <laughs> question. Let's uh, talk about that. But um, that, but, that but it's well, also academic. the competitor, right? The, I mean, such is the competitor of the, Will be the competitor of these institutions, technically.
0: Um. That's what's what's uh, on the agenda, I think. I mean, I don't think Onsutral is the competitor in any sense because they don't have an institutional presence. No, but, but as depending like on a how market. Goes, and this is something I'll probably get back to next week. If a, a permanent body of some kind is being set up, you either, you know, de novo, you create a completely new world investment court from scratch or what I seem to or I think is the advisable and what what where the momentum is going, you sort of piggyback on an already existing institution and use the services of uh, an already experienced secretariat, such as EXED, PCA, or the SEC. Right. So in that sense, I mean, speaking just not as an SEC representative, you could, of course, say that the PCA, EXED, and SEC, they're competitors, but they are already competitors in the arbitration market. So even if you're not... Uh, invited, even if you're not as esteemed as I am, and you don't get invited to the UNCTRAL meeting, I, I would really recommend to do the internship that I did, because it's a very interesting organization, which is sort of in the middle of the arbitration world, especially right now, if you're interested in, in investor state disputes, I had a very good time when I was in Vienna. Just for a few months, I saw so many interesting things. I met a lot of people that I still keep in touch with. And It wasn't just the transparency thing. One, as I mentioned, the central secretariat, the repository for the New York Convention, which is interesting if you're interested in commercial arbitration as well, because you have, of course, so many member states and they sort of take care of the New York Convention. They do a lot of research on it. And also, when I was there, we got a reservation or one state signed up to the Uh, New York convention but there are different kinds of reservations available and I I don't know if you if you know this But you can make a commercial reservation or the reciprocity reservation, right? Restricting the applicability of the New York convention and this state had made a reservation that was Hard to understand to put it mildly So what was
1: you received it like in an you know just an email application being like we would like to make this reservation
0: Yeah, basically, state X hereby ratifies the New York Convention, but with the following reservation. And then the reservation was in in language that I couldn't understand. And here it's, I mean, it's a sensitive position because they're just, the UN central Secretariat. they're just, you know, bureaucrats. They have no decision-making power or anything. They can't guide the state. The state in international law, of course, is supreme. So you cannot in any way try to interpret or alter the meaning of what the state is saying. So what you have to do, once again, going back to diplomatic language, you have to go to the state and ask them, you know, to clarify in a neutral way and see if you can make them rephrase the reservation without, you know, indicating that you would want them to rephrase it. Right. exactly. So I, I didn't do it, obviously, but I was just a you know, fly on the wall when this was being discussed. It was so interesting. So were they like, did they lash back and being like,
1: our best lawyers were on this? You don't know what you're talking about.
0: I didn't see the whole process, oh, but okay. that's, that's obviously what they were uh, trying to be one step ahead of at the secretary. I got the impression that they had done this before, since most states of the world are, are or maybe some 160, 165 something states are. And New York Convention states. I think they've been in this position previously, so they were very sensitive. So I think that situation did not arise simply because the secretary was very sensitive and tried to to avoid that particular thing happening.
1: Interesting. It, it it's such a. I mean, that's it's just like working in an institution, and you and I know this. It's you have to take off any sort of advocacy hat you could ever have and just play it straight down the middle. There's yes, no, yeah. no real leniency there.
0: Yeah, even more so when you're dealing with states Definitely. who are essentially giving up sovereignty. So you have to be very, 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 very careful. And naturally, as our listeners would know, it's not really my forte. So I'm happy to be an academic.
1: <laughs> what, because the risks are lower? Yeah, and you can say lower. whatever you want. <laughs> God, could you imagine if you like misinterpreted a state's reservation of the New York convention?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean if you rewrote it I think they even published on the something maybe when it's it's the on travel web page you have all the New convention states and you also have the reservations yeah it's, it's all it's on there for everyone to to see
1: interesting yeah I had to go through the Trevo for the ECT and look at all those reservations that they have um that the states have there and that is was a whole back and forth between what they first claim I mean this is all like public if you have access to the Trevo but um just what the states claimed and then there's kind of like negotiations on how that works i mean you can't just like reserve the entire thing or make a reservation yeah. for the entire thing so it, it's a very long process
0: yeah and we obviously talk about this from our uh, narrow perspectives but i would imagine that most people who have worked on international or any kind of body that deals with international uh, treaties and states you, this is everyday business and you sort of grow accustomed to it pretty quickly but to our you know municipal law outside perspective it's very strange definitely
1: all right let's move on to the happy fun time That sounds good. Happy fun time. Or what's what's the (laughs) right? I can't do it. My tonality is becoming monotonous. Okay. (laughs) Try the Borat way. Happy fun time. Uh, Now I sound like Count Chocula. Did you have him on your cereal? Um, Anyway, so now we're going to talk about something way more highbrow than what I just talked about, which is how to not how to be a barrister in a QC, but their involvement in the international arbitration market. Now, just I wanted to briefly go through what it takes to qualify as a barrister. Um, how, in Sweden, you just go to school, come out and abracadabra you're a lawyer? Is that how it works? Yes.
0: Yeah, I mean, you would know, but yeah, basically yeah. that's it. This is very... Civil law versus common law, once again, I think. I mean, it's different in different civil law countries, but the point is that it's very different in different jurisdiction.
1: Yeah, so you have your legal program at the university here in Sweden, and then you graduate, and then you're a lawyer. They have a separate qualification, which is to be advokat, and that's an ethics-based oral exam. Um, which is a level of distinguishment as well, but not necessarily...
0: Yeah, but the point is I think that you don't have to be an advocate, you don't have to be a member of the equivalent of the bar in order to just stand up in court and represent someone, unless for specific very... Like narrow. If you're representing someone in a criminal case, for example, you have to be an advocate. But otherwise, you can represent. There's no monopoly from on behalf of the bar. Anyone can call themselves a lawyer. Right, which is so nice
1: and refreshing. In the U.S., you have four years of your undergraduate in whatever you want. A colleague of mine in law school studied flute for four years, and then you go to law school for three years. You take an LSAT, a pre-law exam. You apply for law school. That's three extra years, and then you graduate. You're nothing. And then you take a bar exam, which you study for about, you know, three to four months after you graduate law school, you sit for the bar exam and then you hopefully pass. And then you're declared a lawyer. You get ESQ Esquire at the end of your name and your Jewish parents are proud to the moon and back.
2: Uh, (laughs) End of story.
1: End of story. Uh, And then we and that's it. And then to be a judge and all that is just how you you know, you're just experienced practitioners. Then you get appointed. So, I mean, that, that's the end of the road. Now, let's walk through how to be a barrister. So you get straight A's in every course ever invented in high school and in university. And then you have at the end of your, then you go to graduate Where are we school. now? Are we in we're the English, UK or are we in the, the Commonwealth? Okay, yeah. We're in the UK. Um, then you- Because that's
0: something just to keep in mind. As we talk about this, because I think many You're of right. these things are similar in different Commonwealth states, yeah. but maybe you haven't right. done the deep research into South Africa or
1: Scotland. I know Australia just because Simon Wolf, the previous guest on this podcast, um, told me about it. So we can maybe do a little bit of comparison as we go. But yeah, we'll focus on the UK for now. Uh, in your final year of of your law school, you start applying for your pupillage. So there's such a line to get into this pupillage that you do it even before you graduate and even before you apply for your BPTC, which is something else, So, which we'll talk about. So you get into, so you go on Bar Council Pupillage Gateway and you apply and you send out about 12 applications and then there's interviews. And in your interviews, you're doing some problem solving, some mock advocacy exercises. And this is just to get your pupillage. Now, even if you do or do not get your pupillage, after you graduate, you have to take a one-year bar professional training course, which is the BPTC. Um, and that's where you study some subjects like civil law, criminal law, oral advocacy, written advocacy, study research methods, ethics, etc.
0: Actual law. Actual,
1: exactly. <laughs> when I read that, I was like, wait, that's those were my courses in law school, so <laughs> exactly really they understand. do this there's all of
0: this in a
1: year so they basically say that you know your your undergraduate or your graduate law school is the kind of theoretical uh, methodology of it and then you have your practical skills year which is your BPTC so let's just say that you're an amazing student at Oxford University and you pass your bptc and you get your pupillage before you graduate so
0: the time where, where do you get your pupillage just to give the whole picture
1: at well it can be in a lot of places but um usually at chambers and when you actually get called to the bar you're it's a member of an an inn calls you to the bar we're going to get okay. so many emails on this uh <laughs> but you have a so let's say you've graduated and everything's hockey dory and you get a pupillage at a great chamber after your intensive, you know, interview, then you have to go through 12, qualify what are called qualifying sessions. Um, and then, so with, so your pupillage is 12 months, they call it the first six and the second six, and then the second six is when you actually get your own, start working on your own cases. And then, but after 10 months, so into your second six, you start applying for tenancy at that chambers or at another chambers. But if you finish your pupillage, And you finish your 12 qualifying sessions and you pass the BPTC, then you're quote unquote called to the bar by your inn. So I think that you're, you know, that's when the inn comes into play. And then you can get tenancy. And if you don't get tenancy, then you get into what's called the third six, which is basically buying you more time to apply the next round um, to see if you can be a tenant of this chambers, And then you become a barrister. So The amount of time and then it's so funny because I went on their website about, you know, the bar council's website and it was this like, you know, propaganda video and it was like, and you might have to pay a lot of money. So uh, just be prepared for that. A friend of mine who was thinking about sitting after the BPTC, uh, which is that exam that you take, uh, said that just to take the exam was 20,000 pounds.
0: Um, Jesus, so not- that's, I mean, sitting up here in the socialist uh, Arctic <laughs> Europe, that's insane. But also, I mean, Crimea River, how much do you pay in the US to, <laughs> to go through like seven years of college plus law school plus bar exam? That's like a million, probably.
1: Yeah, I think you're about there, I mean, depending on what school to go to. But yeah, you're looking at like at least half a million to get your um, plus interest on your loans. But yeah. So then yeah, you're a barrister. Now, barristers, and I've seen this in practice once, only once have I seen kind of the QC come at like the ninth inning of a baseball game sports analogy. Um, but basically what how I have seen it in arbitration is that you have counsel that has kind of run the case and they can use a QC for a couple of ways. One is to review drafts or also to draft. Um Another one would could be taking decisions on evidence, kind of like which evidence they should provide if they are lacking certain evidence to kind of like review their case. And then finally to show up at the oral hearing and kind of have their smooth, suave, West End English accent
0: and impress everybody that's me, an American. Okay, let me... Can I do the horrible things you do at the conference when you, you compile a bunch of questions and yeah. the person on the... On the panel has to address nine different kinds of questions at yeah, the same time. I'll it okay, down. so so take notes. Mm-hmm. First, you you just jump from barrister to QC. You have this you know, when you take the silk. And yeah, yeah. You, yeah. I just wanted to say that basically. <laughs> what it is. When you become QC, what is that? First question: What's QC? QC.
1: Second question: uh-huh, are, okay.
0: are English lawyers the best lawyers in the world? And maybe we can m- make this into a separate segment and another happy fun time. I I th- I think so, but I have some other candidates as well. Okay. And third question: How does it work if you are not trained in the UK, but you still want to practice uh, in any way? But ideally, you know, on the same sort of par as as a QC or a senior member of the of the domestic community? Can you come in from the outside and just start practicing? Those are my three good questions, questions um,
1: Joel from Sweden. Uh, the first one, a QC is Queen Council, and that's a bit different. And that is, you know, once usually once you have tenancy, but I don't think necessarily you have to be a barrister to get the QC. But you are g- granted this title, um, and that's when you are given the silk. But it is a different thing than being a barrister, and it's a of in, in
0: my limited experience, it seems to be the, the barrister deluxe, basically, yeah. the most. Because I think they're promoted from within the community or they get the title from within the community somehow. So it's it's like the more experienced or more proficient barristers become. Yeah. You see, actually.
1: And so they're but technically, I, they're appointed by the queen. So they're Her Majesty's
0: counsel learned in the Yeah, novel. That's sexy. But I read a book or a novel, actually, that has nothing to do with this apart from the fact that it's set in the late 1920s in London where the, one of the characters is a lawyer and he is a Casey king's Council, king's because Council, right? the, the head of state is is a king at the time right and and not as now a queen well uh, this is this is obviously a, a very detailed question so you can yeah. move on to the next okay. question
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, your next question are is are english lawyers the best lawyers uh, obviously you can't make that generalization uh yeah, that's how, however I think that, and this goes into one of my pros for having a QC or having a barrister on your team, is that they're basically trained to digest a supreme amount of information into a coherent and cohesive narrative that is like simple and digestible for other people that aren't as gifted as they are. And they have to do it under a short period of time and get many different cases and kind of just like eat it all up, digest, and then regurgitate at the final hearing. So in that sense, I think that requires like a, a great level of intelligence, don't you think?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as I said, I think, once again, with the reservation, that we're being very general here. I, I think typically they are the best lawyers, actually, which is also why they charge <laughs> so much more one, right. than any other lawyers. And to be fair, and, and also to to uh, modify this, this praise of the UK a little bit, they're also the product of a super classist system. If you are a QC specifically, you've been typically, and of course not always, but you've been either the product of a system through which you get access to extremely good education and Fierce competition and good schooling throughout your entire life. Definitely. So, of course, or you are fighting that because you're, you know, the the protagonist from some movie, and you are not a product of, or not the part of a, the the, the <laughs> part hunting. of society. Yeah, exactly. So, in order to to become a QC with with more limited resources to begin with, you also have to be like the best of the best. So, I, I would imagine that the QCs that you and I see at conferences. For every for each, for each such QC, there's like hundred thousand people out somewhere in like the East Midlands doing something else who never became QC, right. Uh,
1: but I know I think I I totally agree with you. I think it is a product of you you see the type of people, and that's why I said that they have these accents that are from the West End, or you know, they're it's a it's a posh inner circle that a lot of people try to break into anyway um, and then your third question
0: if you want to break into how do you do
1: if you want to break into it how do you do it because if you're a foreign lawyer can you do it and the answer is yes and the only reason why i know that is because again i know an australian who is basically can be who is a solicitor in australia but can be accepted into a pupillage um for a chambers and then become a barrister that way but is is that a
0: special case because the uk used to rule australia and they still maintain some sort of informal link because that seems to be the case typically yes
1: yes i think so, you it, so if probably.
0: you're not a commonwealth lawyer the bridge is is gone there's no way
1: i mean you can still be a member of a chambers you know kyle bear is a member of the three virulent buildings and he's not a barrister or a uk lawyer yeah um so I, I, obviously there's ways around it but this kind of goes back to your point and which is you know if you can find if you know a guy who can give you a pupillage that's half of the battle right i mean half the battle is getting this pupillage so your friend Barry down the street can get you a pupillage at Matrix Chambers then you you're halfway down the road and then he gets you a tenancy because he knows all the other guys um, let me just
0: remind our listeners Brian that this is the happy fun time because i realize that i am right now not maybe a, having a fun you know, time no, no, other way around. This is not the educational uh, segment. This is the entertainment segment, because I know nothing about this. And I'm embarrassed, both for myself and for our listeners, uh, because I also want to ask you, how do the, the chambers and the inns relate to the law firms? Because, you know, have you have a lot of, of course, just normal law firms, no? International law firms with branches in London. Yeah. They also give pupillages? No? No. So it's just instant Chambers, and then you have a separate uh, just a pipe of its own next to the INS and Chambers pipe, which is just law firms. Yeah, law exactly. Firms. And which is usually
1: the solicitor track. But what's happening now, which was what I alluded to before, is that it's, it's becoming a bit of a blending because some clients want a QC. So it is as like a marketing advantage for certain firms. They're bringing a QC on staff and saying, oh, you want a QC? We have a QC.
0: Oh, I see. So traditionally, uh, normal law firms, i.e. law firms that are like law firms in the rest of the world, yep. they were typically solicitors. And yes. then you had this specific, okay, now I see. And they are still
1: they still are solicitors. I mean, it's, the solicitor yeah. track is to be a commercial lawyer, basically, arbitration lawyer. And then the, the QCs are um, doing that. So are doing their own thing. And they're independent contractors, which leads us uh, uh-huh. into the pros is who they are, right? So they're self-employed, independent contractors. They, they market the fact that they have lower overhead because they're not part of this big dinosaur firm. You don't have to worry about anything. And, you know, the Chambers pays for our staplers anyway, so all you have to do is get me um and they have so they'll have more flexible working methods and you know they're able to kind of like suit you know they don't have to worry about a firm's policies to deal with fees and fee structures or anything like that
0: sure or the, conflicts
1: the other pro and this might be why you're saying that um English lawyers in the very general sense are are better lawyers is maybe because they have this extreme emphasis on advocacy and public speaking and that's kind of their forte is kind of come in and and whip something up at the end of the hearing or the end of the arbitral proceedings and kind of advocate at a very basic level but you know kind of like getting all their points across the the views of their client and when I saw that in practice you kind of had an exchange of documents going back and forth that were not super well written you had like lacking evidence in certain ways and then it was like you could tell when the QC hopped in on the case because it was like late requests for requests for the submission of evidence all these requests for procedural orders all this stuff happened right before the hearing and then the hearing came and it was way more way more streamlined Um, So in that sense, it can be really good. And so you can kind of have that split structure to kind of save costs for your client is to hire a local firm, someone who doesn't have that much experience, kind of get the process rolling and move it along. And then at the very end, you hire the super expensive superstar to like take it home.
0: Yeah, but this is assuming though that you're in London. Yeah,
1: yeah. or No, but this this is why it's great in arbitration is that you could bring them over from anywhere.
0: Mm, Yeah, but then they cease to be... QC in the legal sense, I guess. Then they just. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So if, if, it, if the place of arbitration is in, in, I don't know, Geneva, then they just senior lawyers that you bring in. Yeah. Like long any long other senior, senior lawyers. lawyer. Yeah, I yeah.
1: mean, okay. The cons are for the same reasons that they're self employed. Um, that they may not be involved in the correspondence with opposing counsel. They may have restricted, so they get what's called instructions from their clients and the instruction can be limited on what they're allowed to do and what they're getting paid for and everything like that. So everything beyond that, like, you know, correspondence with opposing counsel, correspondence with the tribunal is not necessarily in the mandate of the QC once they're involved in the case. Um, So they're kind of restricted to their instructions. So Hmm. that,
0: that was like my short little pros and cons list. And so, uh, I, don't you always I mean you're acting in your client's interest and if if the client has money enough to do it and you 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 know shouldn't you just do it because you can and you want to get the best possible uh, outcome for your client? Yeah, isn't that always? The only thing, the only question you get to uh, you have to answer in order to become a lawyer in every jurisdiction don't steal money from your client and advocate and do do the best on behalf of your client. And if that happens to be getting George Clooney to read the opening statement, then, I mean, right. by all means.
1: But if you, I mean, if you think that you have to counsel your client and give suggestions and your client is like, okay, you know, none of us are very strong in English here. Do you think that we should get a QC to kind of like come in at the last minute or none of us really know arbitration, but I hired you as a firm because you know, my, you know, me as the client. So now we need someone who knows arbitration to kind of give more credit to a barrister more than just like a smooth talker. Um, You have to know as counsel whether you think that the QC is going to bring value for the cost that they're going to charge. I mean,
0: that's, of course, the common sense, like more nuanced picture. And to answer that question, you have to know the applicable law, who's on the tribunal, who's on the other side, et cetera, et cetera, and make an informed decision. So obviously there's no right or wrong, I think, but I see your point. Definitely. It's
1: just the fact that it exists, I think, is a very unique twist on on
0: arbitration. A very unique twist. (laughs) Is this going to be a recurring thing?
1: Yeah, I'm just doing it to piss you off now. (laughs) It works. Um, All right, well, we're done with QCs.
0: Yes, we are. But I I want to come back to to who are the best lawyers in the world. Candidates are welcome. I, I would be inclined to say that German lawyers... Might be the natural rival, much as in football historically, but we you can get back to this. we actually we can do just a happy fun time on Germans because their system is even more screwed <laughs> up than the the English barrister system that's true
1: that is true all right next next week Germans <laughs>
0: yeah next week, I'll be in Vienna. I'll do both on <laughs> trial and I'll rant about why Germans are so so strange.
1: yeah, I mean the Austrians would love that,
0: yeah perfect all right uh that's it for us the arbitration station no or oh, do we yeah. have something
1: else no, that's it
0: okay thanks for listening remember to subscribe give us five stars in itunes send amen. us emails i love getting emails amen and we responded so brian yeah i do you don't respond. i was
1: res- i respond just give me 24 hours oh, i don't, yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. take baths so i have you know I have to do. <laughs> Touche. All right. Until next time.
0: Bye.